morning. And he wonders briefly if he was meant to heed these sounds as a warning. He is not alone. Standing above him, Edward Sherman Hoare, his sole companion, holds aloft a string of fish and examines the oily glistening of inanimate scales. A trickle of water drops from the string and lands on Henry's shoulder. Edward grins in apology. Henry had hoped for solitude today, an occasion to explore the uncertainties he has had little time to consider while helping his father make pencils in the long sheds behind their home. But he needed a boat for the excursion, and he prefers not to row alone, lest the loneliness remind him that his brother John will never again take a turn at the oars. Edward Sherman Hoare is several years Henry's junior, the younger brother of one of Henry's former classmates, the son of Squire Hoare, one of Concord's most esteemed patriarchs. And Edward admires Henry, looks to him for guidance. Edward calls himself a disciple of nature, and he's an earnest student, eager to benefit from Henry's experience. In all likelihood, Henry thinks, Edward will never need to learn self-reliance with axe and rope, since the inheritance that awaits him is one to be coveted. But Edward is not entirely without burdens. He has recently returned from California, trailing clouds of disgrace, and Henry understands that Edward wishes to put his indiscretions behind him, wants only to resume his life in New England to finish his final year at Harvard and savor the long, promising foreshadow of days yet unspent. Anxious for Henry's approval, Edward says he will not become a banker like his father, says he will refuse the political legacy that is his due, says he will leave that to his older brothers, and will instead pursue a life of solemn contemplation. Edward is uncertain of his career, but he at least knows the sort of man he will become. Henry longs for the assuredness he sometimes sees in the eyes of younger men. His mother, Cynthia, has recently taken another lodger into their crowded home, a young man named Isaac Hecker, who, like Henry, appears unsettled as to what manner of life he will lead. Isaac has told Henry how he lived for a time among the philosophers at Brook Farm and then at Fruitlands. But now, he says, he cannot be driven from the certainty of his books. Isaac is not easily distracted by bright skies or promising winds, and Henry envies the singular attention he devotes to his study of classical languages and the spiritual writings of Orestes Brownson. Plagued by indecision, Henry still defines his life by what it is not. He is not a poet, though he has written poetry. He is not a philosopher, though he has spent many quiet nights examining his soul until its clumsy scaffolding seemed but a transparent nuisance. He is not an explorer though he feels more at home beneath a canopy of trees than in the shadows of rooftops and steeples. He has surveyed fields, framed houses, and assembled odd machines for obscure ends. 
but he does not count himself a master of any of these trades. Henry still has no idea how he will employ the life that stretches before him. And today he has come to the edge of the woods to seek respite from his indifferent labors. Henry and Edward have only three matches, and now two lie black and twisted like question marks in the dirt. Edward forgot to bring the oilcloth-wrapped matches that he purchased for the trip, but they met a shoemaker on the river with enough to spare. Edward watches with interest. Fish dangling from one hand, he opens his coat and tries to provide shelter. They agree that it's too windy to start a fire. It seems very likely that they will have to settle for a cold meal after all. Henry frowns and scratches the wild line of beard that faintly circles his chin from ear to ear.